Hey, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those red books in front of you. You'll want to be looking at this text today. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 63. As you're turning there, uh, I was uh, listening to the radio uh, recently, and there was uh, talk of uh, what had happened recently at the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. Every time I uh, turn on the radio, like a news radio, I always hear something about the LADWP, Department of Water and Power. Apparently there's another scandal up in Los Angeles in the Department of Water and Power. One of their higher-ups decided that he would uh, pass out contracts... Uh, like kind of like a, a technical contracts, uh, uh, audiovisual type work, whatever the Department of Water and Power needs from an audiovisual standpoint. But nevertheless, he would pass out contracts uh, to some of his buddies, some of his friends. And uh, for years this went on, and, and the department didn't know what was happening. And sure enough, interestingly enough, those same friends whom he gave those contracts to started slipping him some money on the side to say thank you very much. How often does this happen in politics, friends? Where one politician or one leader gives a little bit of an extra favor to someone else so that they can get a little kickback. A little personal gain. It happens all the time. And they don't always get caught. But it's not just in politics. It's in all of life. In fact, each and every one of us struggle, sometimes even on a daily basis, not to live our lives in such a way that we would profit from others. In the story today in the Gospel of Luke, we are going to see another vignette of personal gain. This time, they're not politicians. Well, kind of. They're religious leaders. They're the same religious leaders that put our Lord Jesus Christ to death. The title of this message today is A Trial of Personal Gain. A Trial of Personal Gain. And I also want to make mention of that beautiful painting up there. That's a painting by Ivan Glazunov a contemporary Russian realist painter from the Russian Academy of Painting and Architecture. He also has works at the Kremlin. And I thought that that was a beautiful, beautiful uh, painting symbolizing Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. The title of this message again, A Trial of Personal Gain. Would you stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 22? Let's all stand if you're able to. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 63, and I want to make mention that Jesus has just been arrested, and he's not before Pilate just yet. First, he goes to the home of the high priest, Caiaphas, and we pick up the story, Luke 22, verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face. And asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, 
you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And Jesus said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked Jesus, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered Pilate and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they, the crowd, the religious leaders, they were the more fierce, saying, Jesus stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee all the way to this place, to Jerusalem. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent Jesus to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see Jesus, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracles done by him. And Herod questioned Jesus with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. You may be seated. Long text, but we're going to go through it rather quickly. Verse 63 again. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who's the one who struck you? And many of the things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led Jesus into their council. Again, verse 63, now the men who held Jesus. Who were these men? Simple question. Who were these men? The answer to that is most likely the Roman soldiers. Now, what's interesting about that is that they're in the home or in the compound, the home of the Jewish high priest, Caiaphas. Think about that for just a moment. Israel, the Jews, are occupied in this day and age at that time of Jesus, they're occupied by Rome. And yet, in Caiaphas's compound, in his home, are Roman soldiers, somewhat used at his discretion. They were actually under joint management by both Caiaphas and Pilate. These soldiers would have been somewhat on loan from Pilate to the Jewish high priest on loan to handle local criminal matters and investigations. Think about being a Roman soldier on loan to the Jews. No Roman soldier was thrilled with the notion of being placed under the quasi-jurisdiction of a Jew hundreds of miles away from Rome. But such was the lot of many novice Roman soldiers. Still, it it remained a blow to their pride 
It was not an assignment these law enforcement officers wanted, these military men wanted. And they actively sought ways to express their angst being under, somewhat under, the Jewish high priest. One of the ways they expressed that angst is in how they treated the Jewish populace. Jesus was an easy target. Word had spread about Jesus, even to these soldiers, that he had claimed to be a prophet. And so they played a game with him. They blindfolded Jesus. They punched him in the face. And then they asked him, who hit you? Who hit you? Jesus said not a word. I often wonder uh, what the soldiers would have done had Jesus answered their question. What would they have done had he answered the question correctly? Blindfolded, struck on the face, a dozen or so soldiers gathered around him. What would they have done if Jesus by name said it was you, it was this one? Struck again, it was you this time. Struck again, it was you this time. I wonder how long that game would have lasted. Jesus chose not to speak. He could have. He chose not to. Because Jesus had a greater purpose that day. A greater purpose than proving his ability to prophesy. You know, in life, the world often... uh, The world demands that we prove ourselves. Every corner of our human existence is often a situation in which we are lured into proving ourselves, proving our skills, proving our talents, demonstrating our self-worth. I think we often find the need really to do it sometimes on social media where we're, we're proving ourselves, proving how, how nice our family looks, proving what a great vacation we have, proving what great skills and what great talents we have. Look at this, look at this, look at this. Proving to others that we are important, that, we, that we're someone special. But the way of Jesus is quietly going about our lives without feeling the need to convince others of our personal importance. The way of Jesus is letting our actions speak louder than our words. Jesus kept quiet. He didn't need to prove his importance in front of a dozen Roman soldiers. And the beatings continued throughout the night Verse 66, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led Jesus into their council, saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. The word council there in Greek, synodrion, sanhedrin. This was the Jewish council of the Sanhedrin. That is to say the the 71 members of the Jewish aristocracy, the religious leaders of the day. 
They were a variety. They, they came uh, from a variety of different uh, theological and uh, backgrounds in Israel of that day. But they came together as as priests and leaders to decide some of the the more weightier religious and judicial matters of Israel. The Sanhedrin would gather to consider the greatest of uh, of cases of trials, so to speak. They were kind of like a supreme court, but a lot more religious in nature. The Sanhedrin convened as soon as it was day. Throughout the night, Jesus had been beaten, mocked, struck. As soon as it was day, the council convened. And their opening accusation against Jesus was this. If you are the Christ, tell us. If you are the Christ, the Messiah, if you're the Messiah, Jesus, tell us. Jesus' opening defense is quite ironic, actually. His opening statement is quite ironic because it shows that Jesus is more concerned with the welfare of his accusers than with his own welfare. Look at what he says. He says, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. That is to say, in plain English, if I tell you that I am the Christ, if I tell you that I am the Messiah, the Savior, you will by no means believe me. Jesus says, the whole point of discussion as to whether or not I am the Messiah is to decide whether or not you're going to believe that claim if it's true. The whole point of even having a discussion, is Jesus the Messiah? Jesus says the whole point of that discussion is at the end of, at the end of it, if it's true, will you believe it or not? This is not just a religious history test, friends. It's not a game, Jesus says. It's not merely a a fanciful discussion in academic circles where people gather around and wonder, who was Jesus? What was his significance to the nation of Israel? If you're going to consider the question, is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the Savior? You had better be prepared to believe in him if the answer is yes. This is not just for academic circles. The Jewish leaders wanted to know if Jesus claimed to be Messiah so they could kill him. They had no interest in ascertaining the answer so that they could believe in him. They were trying to ascertain the answer. They were trying to determine, is he the Messiah? Is he the Savior? So that if they got an affirmative answer, they could crush him. That was their motive. In answering the question, I've, I've entertained, it's funny, I've, I've been around uh, unbelievers who like to posit the question, you know, who was Jesus? I've been around those and been in circles where people like to have, you know, round the table discussions about the person of Jesus, the significance of Jesus, the role of Jesus in life. Look, friends, at the end of the day, C.S. Lewis said it best. Either Jesus is a liar or Jesus is a lunatic, or Jesus is Lord. That's it. He either lied 
about who he was, and this book is a fraud, or he was a lunatic, he was just crazy, he was a crazy man, or he was Lord. He was who he says he was. Those are all the only options. And academia can spin it all they want. And round the table dinner discussions, we can spin it all we want. But at the end of the day, Jesus says, look, if you're going to consider this question, you better be prepared to believe in me if the answer is yes. Jesus says, you should only seek this question if you wish to stave off eternal death yourselves. But the motives of the Sanhedrin was completely contaminated. They looked at everything through the lens of personal gain. Jesus was a threat to their personal gain, their power, their influence. They could care less whether or not Jesus might be the Messiah. They simply wanted him dead. If I tell you, Jesus said, you will by no means believe me. And if I ask you, Jesus says, if I ask you if you think I'm the Messiah, you won't answer me because you don't really care about that answer. All you care about is silencing me. You won't let me go. So there they sat. The Sanhedrin, the Council of 71, there they sat in judgment over Jesus, though he was, in fact, their rightful judge. And Jesus alludes to that fact in verse 69. Take a look at verse 69. Hereafter, Jesus says, hereafter, after this, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it it ourselves from his own mouth. Jesus was not wanting to belabor the inevitable. He says, hereafter, after this, after this day of injustice is over, the Son of Man will take his rightful place at God's right hand. Sensing, sensing that self-incrimination was near, the Jewish leaders moved in for the kill. Are you then the Son of God? And Jesus responds, You rightly say that I am. The word rightly there, should have highlighted it. Uh, The word rightly in verse 70, um, in some of your Bibles actually it'll be in italics, right? Some of your other translations you might see a different word there. But in the New King James, anytime you see a word in italics, which is the the Pew Bible uh, version that we have there, anytime you see a word in italics, that is an English addition to bring greater clarity to the text. In reality, that word could be omitted, and we could just read it as, You say that I am, Jesus said in verse 70. You say that I am. It wasn't a wholesale admission of guilt. One commentator calls it a qualified positive response. But it was enough to satisfy the weighted scales of the Jewish elites. What further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And with that, the Jews committed yet another of many, many, many injustices against Jesus during this trial. You see, there were protocols in place, friends. 
Just like there are protocols in place for our judicial system, which sometimes, you know, it's not a perfect system, but there are protocols in place that guide how trials are to be conducted. Well, there were protocols in the first century among the Sanhedrin, the council of the 71 Jewish leaders. There were protocols in place as to how this trial was to be conducted. And yet during Jesus' trial, nearly every one of those protocols were ignored. Lorna Berg uh, has an article called The Illegalities of Jesus' Religious and Civil Trials, an article in uh, Bibliotheca Sacra from 2004. She lists no less than 24 instances in which Jewish protocol was transgressed in the trial of Jesus. I just want to highlight five of them. I find them very interesting. Five illegalities at the trial of Jesus. Take a look at this. Number one. No arrest or verdict was to involve the taking of a bribe. But of course, we remember from Pastor Tom's message, who was bribed to turn over Jesus? Judas, one of his own disciples, bribed by the Jewish aristocracy to turn over Jesus. That was expressly forbidden in the Old Testament law. Number two, capital trials, capital murder trial, uh, capital punishment trials must be held in public. During the daytime, secret trials were forbidden. Well, it mentions the daytime in the council, but prior to that, all the interrogation, all of the beatings, all of the mocking, all of the, the, uh, the deliberate uh, interrogation of Jesus happening over the night as it did, very much done in secret, very much done behind the scenes. Number three, capital trials will not to be held on the eve of a Sabbath or another festival. This was from the Mishnah. The Mishnah, by the way, uh, in the book of the Sanhedrin in the Mishnah, the Mishnah was a compilation in about 200 AD or so, a compilation, a written record of Jewish oral tradition. So the Mishnah was recorded some 200 years after Jesus, but what it recorded was the protocols in place during the time of Jesus and in and around that day and age. So the Mishnah cites that capital trials were not to be held on the eve of a Sabbath or a major festival. Well, what was happening in Jerusalem when Jesus was arrested? Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. One of the greatest festivals in all of the Jewish calendar was taking place right when the Jewish religious leaders were arresting Jesus. Strictly forbidden in the Mishnah. Number four, two more. The accused could not testify against himself or be condemned by his own testimony alone. Not only did they ask Jesus direct questions, which was forbidden in the Mishnah, but not only that, they condemned him based on his word alone. Expressly forbidden. And fifth and finally... There were to be at least two witnesses whose testimony was in perfect agreement to convict Jesus. Read Matthew, read Mark, read Luke, read John. You'll see other testimonies, by the way. The other gospel writers cite others that rose up during the trial. None of their testimony agreed. All of it was disjointed. So Lorna Berg and others like her have done a masterful job of showing just how much Jesus' arrest and trial were done in secret under the cover of night for personal gain. The Jewish leaders didn't care whether Jesus was Messiah or not. They simply wanted him dead. And they stopped at nothing to accomplish their goal.
It was a kangaroo court at the Sanhedrin. But of course, the Sanhedrin was not the final word. In that day, capital punishment could only be carried out by the Roman provincial governor. And so having hastily pronounced Jesus guilty before their religious court, the Jews then took Jesus before Pilate. We pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 23. Look at verse 1. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led Jesus to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Notice, this is fascinating. Notice how the accusation changes. It changes drastically. Gone is the great emphasis, the significant emphasis on Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God. The Jews knew such accusations would hold little weight in the eyes of a pagan Roman governor. And so instead, they begin to massage the argument a bit. They put new clothes on it. They dress it up, the accusation, to make it more dramatic in the eyes of a Roman leader. They say, this man is perverting the nation. That is to say, misleading the nation. That he's taking the nation away. That he's subverting it. That he's destabilizing Israel. This man is destabilizing the territory over which you are governor, Pilate. This was kind of a summary charge of sorts, of which the next two charges demonstrate more specifically how Jesus was destabilizing the nation allegedly. How was he allegedly sending Israel into chaos? Number one, he forbid taxes to be paid to Caesar. Open your Bible to the story where Jesus forbid taxes to be paid to Caesar. Go ahead. No one? You can't find it. Ah, that's because it's not there. In fact, just the opposite. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke and in the other, Matthew, Mark, other synoptics, Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus said. Very plainly, very clearly. Jesus, nowhere in the Gospels, nowhere in history was it recorded that Jesus forbid paying taxes to Caesar. It was a complete and utter lie. A lie for personal gain. How was Jesus allegedly sending Israel into chaos? They said, he's forbidding taxes to be paid to Caesar. Patently false. Number two, he's claiming to be Christ, that is, a king. Well, that's true, but not in the sense that Pilate would have understood it. Notice how the very Jewish word for Christ, Christos, Messiah, notice how the very Jewish word for Christ, how it's defined for Pilate. The Jews define it simply as king, a very oversimplification of the word Christos in Greek, but one that was sure to attract Pilate's attention. You see, the Jews, they were sly. The Jewish leaders were slick. They knew at the end of the day, Pilate really only had two jobs. He had two jobs. Number one, collect taxes and send them to Caesar. And number two, keep the peace. 
Pilate had two jobs. Collect taxes, send them to Caesar. And number two, keep the peace. These accusations threatened both of Pilate's primary duties. They knew Pilate would have to do something. Now before we get to Pilate's response, I want to look one more time though at these accusations. What's striking to me in my meditation, I I really just, uh, I sat in this text longer than I sit in most uh, texts in preparation for a sermon. But I really sat and meditated on the accusations. And what's striking to me as I meditated upon them is that the Jewish religious leaders are mocking their own millennia-old divine promise as sons of Abraham. Remember, God had promised the Jews that they would be his chosen people, that he would be their God, that they would be his people. He had promised it to them. But here they were, seemingly just fine with Caesar as their king and their Lord. In fact, in the Gospel of John, they rise up and shout back to Pilate. They say, Caesar is our king. So enamored were they with their oppressed ruler that they had forgotten all the promises that God had given them. So enamored were they with Caesar, with Pilate, with their occupiers. Why? Because they got kickbacks. So enamored were they with their foreign occupiers that they shouted, Caesar is our only king. As recorded in the Gospel of John, they had forgotten the Lord's promise God also promised the Jews a land of their own. But here that land occupied by a foreign power. A foreign power who exacted heavy tribute from them. And yet the Jewish leadership not only accepted the tax, the tribute tax, but they defended its honor before Pilate. They were nothing but sellouts. Theirs was a marriage of convenience to Rome. For personal gain. And I ask you, and I ask me, where am I selling out? Where am I selling out? God made these promises of, of, of being their Lord. He made these promises of giving them land, of blessing them, of, of pulling them aside as his chosen people. And Israel looked at all those promises and said, nah, we like the kickbacks from this guy. Where are we selling out? God's given us so many riches. He's given us his son. He's given us his spirit to those who believe in Christ as their savior. We have the Holy Spirit of God within us. He's given us spiritual gifts. He's given us every blessing in Christ Jesus. And when this life is over, we have eternity to look forward to. The riches of all that we have in Jesus Christ is innumerable. We cannot count it. And yet I wonder, do we ever sell it off? 
for what Rome is offering? What does pagan Rome occupy in your life? Think of the things you know deep down that you know are wrong, but you tolerate it because it ends in your personal gain. Those of you in business, think of the things that you know are wrong, but you go along with it because you stand a profit. You cut corners in life because you know you're going to profit. All the riches from Jesus, and yet you sell it off. Don't settle, my friends. Don't settle for ill-gotten gains. Don't trade your honor for a larger paycheck. Don't compromise your integrity for momentary pleasure on a screen or in a back room. Don't settle. You have the riches. They are right before you. Jesus counsels us. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Jesus says, go for the best. Go for the gold. The gold that will last forever. Reigning with the Lord in the kingdom of God as Pastor Arch mentioned in his testimony. Look, Jesus, Jesus knows we're motivated by personal gain. He's no dummy. He created us. He knows that within us, we see personal gain and we think, I would like that. He knows that we want personal gain. But here's his counsel to us. He says, look, I will give you personal gain. Wait for it in my kingdom. Grab it now in this life. You'll lose so much in the life to come. I will award you personal gain. I will make you kings and priests with me forever, Jesus promises. If you will wait for it. If you will just be faithful and steady. A man or woman of integrity who doesn't settle. I will give you personal gain. Just don't grab it here. Back to the accusation against Jesus. The buzzword king caught Pilate's attention, just as the Jews thought it would. Verse 3, then Pilate asked Jesus, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and said, it is as you say. And Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Here we have another qualified response of Jesus. It is as you say. Really in Greek, it's just the last two words. You say, Pilate, you say, I am. Another qualified, positive response of Jesus. While the Jews deemed such a response to be worthy of death, Pilate saw it a little differently. He heard Jesus' response and said, I, I don't find fault with this man. Pilate may have sensed the coercion behind the scenes, the deal-making. He found no fault, at least at this juncture. Not the answer the Jews were looking for, though, so they upped the ante. They were all the more fierce, verse 5, saying, Jesus stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place, Jerusalem. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent Jesus to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. The crowd rose up and said, No, no, Pilate, he is guilty. Listen to us. He stirs up the people. He incites violence. 
All the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. And Herod goes, Galilee? Gal- Why do you say Galilee? He's a Galilean. Oh, Herod has his moment where he can get out of this mess. Herod's been looking for his own personal gain. He knows that this trial, uh, he had little to gain from it and much to lose by adjudicating this case. So he was looking for a way out. Galilee was his way out. Protocol suggested that Jesus first be tried by the regional leader of the accused. So Jesus, being from Galilee, well, Herod Antipas was the Tetrarch of Galilee, and it just so happened that Herod was in town the very week of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So Pilate immediately sends Jesus to Herod. Verse 8, Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see Jesus, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracles done by him. Then he questioned Jesus with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Herod's quarters for a moment. Herod's quarters. He came to celebrate the feast. He had long wanted to meet Jesus. There have been a couple times where he and Jesus had interacted through messengers. He had wanted to see a miracle. He had heard that Jesus was a miracle worker. Jesus was sport in the eyes of Herod. But Jesus didn't oblige. He stood silently before Herod as Herod peppered him with questions. And so while Jesus was silent, the Jewish leaders rose up again, just like they did toward Pilate. They started sending a barrage of accusations Jesus' way. We finish with verses 11 and 12. Then Herod, verse 11, with his men of war, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Herod was annoyed that Jesus did not indulge him. So he fitted him with a royal robe and sent him on his way. Yet again, in the Gospels, Jesus does not toe the party line. Jesus was always subtly disrupting the status quo. He never played the part that others demanded of him. Jesus always did the unexpected, yet was always perfectly in line with the Father's will. And that should remind us, and it reminds me, and I want to always have this before my mind as I think about my Lord, that we can never put Jesus in a box. We do not have Jesus figured out. Jesus should always surprise us and cause us to think in ways we never thought possible. The Jewish religious leaders always caught off guard by him. Even his own disciples, they expected him to do A and he would do B. And on and on and on, story after story, Jesus was never putting himself in a neat little box. Makes me wonder how Jesus would react to situations in this day and age. How would Jesus respond in our day? Would he respond in the way that uh, evangelical Christians respond? 
What would Je- how would Jesus respond to uh, homosexual marriage in America? How would Jesus respond to, um, to ISIS, to Iran? What, what would he say? What would he teach? What would he do? For that matter, how would Jesus respond to modern-day Israel? How would Jesus respond to abortion? How would he respond to illegal immigration? How would he respond to the the politics of our day, to Republicans, to Democrats? Who would he vote for? Would he vote? How would Jesus respond to Christians? Don't forget the Jewish religious leaders completely misunderstood him and completely misrepresented him for personal gain. Is it possible that we sometimes do that too? We don't have Jesus figured out. No one did then. No one does now. All that we can do is read his word, pray for his spirit to guide us, and seek to understand him, and to represent him as best as we can, both in word and in deed. The Jews of Jesus' day, they didn't care about understanding him. They had him figured out. He was a threat, a threat to their personal gain. In reality, he was just the opposite. Jesus was their personal gain. What they were doing to him would end in their personal gain, but not in the way they thought it would. They thought it would end in his death and in their maintaining of power. And it did end in his death. But then it ushered in a new kind of power. A resurrection kind of power. The power of God to save sinners whose punishment was paid in full by Jesus Christ. They put on a trial for personal gain. Jesus accepted that trial and accepted that death and went to the cross for their personal gain and for your personal gain and for my personal gain. It's interesting at the very end, the last verse, you can go back one if you'd like. Herod and Pilate became friends. Such a random comment. Kind of awkward. Probably due to the fact that in Luke 13, uh, Pilate had killed some Galileans. So Herod was probably upset about that. They were at odds. And this was a moment in which uh, they became friends again. Scholars often wonder, why in the world would Luke put this in here what relevance does it have it's kind of an insignificant comment isn't it one commentator suggested that even between two pagans even between two ungodly unrighteous men Herod and Pilate the trial and the death of Jesus Christ brought reconciliation and even between two pagan rulers That little glimpse 
of reconciliation, the little seed of reconciliation was born. And when Jesus went to the cross, that seed blossomed. And when he rose again, that seed grew in full. Jesus promises everlasting life to you and to me if we believe him for it. He will reconcile you to God if you will believe in him. I pray that you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, God, for a trial such as this, a kangaroo court, a trial of just complete and utter personal gain by sinful men against you, Lord. And yet you embraced it, God. Your son embraced it fully, knowing it was unjust, knowing it was unfair, knowing that all protocols had been transgressed. He embraced all of it and showed how it was for our personal gain. Not the way we thought it would be, but in a way far greater than we could ever imagine. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. We honor him this morning. We want to commit our lives to him, God. We want to follow him. For those that may not know him, Lord, I pray that someone in this room might believe in Christ for the first time and receive that seed of reconciliation. We thank you, God, for drawing us near by the sacrifice of your son. We thank you for the gain that we have in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.